Put down your paintbrush. It's time for Hobby Support Group. Morning, Andy. Morning, Tom. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Yourself? I'm very well. I'm, I'm sat with a, um, a traditional weak lemon drink. Oh, classic. I'm on the uh, orange and mango squash today. I think I had orange and mango last time. A complete turnaround. I have to have one of your fancy fruit teas next time we chat. Tom, it looks like we've got a really good show uh, today. We're going to talk to uh, Ricky later about accessibility in the hobby. So I'm really looking forward to, to that one. Uh, obviously, we have a usual where we look at what we've been up to and um, what we've purchased, how much we've spent. It's not, gonna be, it's not good, Tom. I've been bad. Uh, as well as our usual bits and pieces about what's happening in the, in the hobby world as well. That sounds really interesting. Looking forward to today's show. Should be a good one. Hobby progress. What have you been up to since we last recorded, Andy? Not as much as I normally would, because um, obviously the, the the youngling's been home from school and he wants to go to the park. And I find it really hard to paint models while I'm pushing him on the swing. I haven't worked out a system for that one yet. Um, but I'm very pleased to say I completed my Burrows and Badgers project. And I think they turned out really nice. Um, as usual, check us off. Check out the Facebook group. Um you can see some pictures of the, the completed models on there and i know some of our hobby support group would have seen me posting up pictures as as i was completing them um and i think they turned out really nice tom i think they look absolutely fantastic they look genuinely brilliant oh thanks man i was really pleased with how they turned out they're really enjoyable models to paint it was nice to take my time take a single model working out over the evening uh, a top tip if you're going to be painting any bows and badges is to actually go and look at an image of what the animal looks like. Because I had some real preconceived notions of what an otter and what a, a, a squirrel. I see them all the time. I wouldn't need to look them up. And um, I looked up and I was actually surprised at the way the fur acted. And so I used that as a reference. And this is, I mean, it's a top tip. I mean, I wouldn't go and you know, start painting German uniforms about checking what they look like. So why would I be any different with an animal? I used loads of nice flowery tufts as well on their bases, which I guess in some cases you might think it'd be too much. But for these kind of Beatrix Potter style anthropomorphic animals, it kind of give a kind of a fairy tale garden kind of look to it. And I think it worked really well on the bases. So I'm, I'm really pleased with how they turned out. And who knows, I might even get a game of burrows and badgers this year. But even if I don't, I'm just I just really enjoyed the project, Tom. I just really enjoyed uh, the craft of just taking the time to paint them as, as some of the most fun painting I've had for a very long time. As I said, I think they look absolutely lovely models. I think they're lovely models. They've done a cracking paint job on. And I, I really like the like flower garden-esque faces that you've put on them. I think it, it sort of really, it ties them all together. Yeah. And they just look really cool. Oh, cheers, man. And um, I, well, I've been seeing you posting up stuff as well, Tom. So I was a bit worried that I was just going to have that to show for it. So last night, I really cracked on with my French Foreign Legion. I wasn't. Gonna, I know how much you've got painted, Tom. So I was like, I better get that French Foreign Legion done. So last night, I stayed up late and I completed my 15 mil French Foreign Legion, which is the the well, I've got the Moroccan Rebels to go as well. But those are the models I've had for the longest sitting in my to-do pile. I've had them over four years now. 
So I'm very glad to have got, and it didn't take very long at all. You just need to get on and do it, which is often the case with these things. And there's some Blue Moon models I picked up from Old Glory in the UK, UK distributor for, for Blue Moon. I got them at Salute, that must be four or five years ago now. Um, and they're really nice models, really nice to paint with, uh, look really great for 15 mil. And I even have a, a trickler that I got from the flag dude. If you if you need flags, go to the flag dude that I've put on there as well. So I've, I've customized them. I've converted one to be a flag bearer. And he's right in the middle there of his trickler. So yeah, really pleased. I mixed up uh, my own base material for those ones as well. I took some Luke APS, New Zealand soil and like beach sand, mixed them together and I actually added in, I'm getting a bit too complicated here, but I had some pastel crowns. And I ground them to a paper and added kind of quite a yellowy um, pastel in. So it was a contrasting colour with the sort of blue on the uniforms. So it just made a few more yellowy orange rocks on the bases. So, um, yeah, I think they turned out really well. I'm really pleased. I've just got the, there's Moroccans to do now on their camels. and I paid the horses for the Moroccans. I've just got to put the riders on, do the riders, do the, the camels and then all the foot troops as well there's a a great deal more of the moroccans than there is of the french foreign legion because they're a bit more of a horde army um but um yeah i look forward to getting those done hopefully by next episode maybe but that's it that's all i've done well you know two armies isn't too bad in a fortnight <laughs> in fairness the boroughs and badgers i had some of them done already and it's and there's only a war band it's not an army it's not like i'm it's not like i was painting my english civil war army now was it I've had less models than one unit of my English Civil War, so. Tom, I had, I had a slow week. How do you get on? Uh, I finished off the last of the Korean War 10 mil projects I was working on, which was the Chinese People's Volunteer Army with some North Korean bits. Yeah. Got all those. They looked amazing, Tom. I really like those. I can really see 10 mil figures working for a 28 mil game. Yeah. I think the weapon ranges, et cetera, would, you know, they would make more sense using a 10 mil figure. Like, you know, a, a pistol that can shoot six inches with a 10 mil figure, I think makes a lot more sense than a 28 mil figure. I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? Like, if you're defending Pegasus Bridge, you've got the model, the Pegasus Bridge model, you've got defenders and they were submachine guns, and they can't shoot from one end of the bridge to the other. But I, that's, that's, a, that's a sort of constraint of the game to make it a game that works, as you have to have these ranges. I also think 10 mil tanks are awesome. Before I bought these, I'd never really seen 10 mil tanks before, mm -hmm. and I, I was... I wasn't sure if they were going to be a bit like micro machines mm -hmm. or glorified tokens. Yeah. But you can definitely see from six feet away what the tanks are. I, I painted a load of uh, German and American tanks, allied tanks for uh, my Battle of the Bulge game. In fact, I ordered more than I really needed because I just enjoyed painting them so much. They're so much fun to paint and they look really good. So I think we definitely need to have a game of water tanker in 10 mil. After I'd finished that, and because of our last episode, you sort of reminded me that we've actually got a bolt action event that we're going to in mm -hmm. July. Mm -hmm. I thought I'd better make a, a start on that, and I couldn't. I, I'm still undecided which army I'm taking. It's either going to be 
Early War Fulshimiega, yeah, or 1937 Japanese, yep. I haven't decided which yet. So I thought I would get the main 1940s miniatures Fulshimiega cleaned up, put on bases, and sorted out. Yep, and they are awesome miniatures. Oh, that's good to hear. That they are absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I cannot wait to get an entire army on the table. That they're all metal, and I love metal minis. Yeah, but I can't wait to have an entire army on the table without a single duplicated sculpt. Yeah, so that they, they are gorgeous. My, it, it isn't a criticism of them at all. The only negative with them is they are a little the weapons on them are a little bit delicate because they are true scaled weapons yeah so the the rifles and things you have to be careful with but the metal that they're made out of is soft enough so i was able to bend everything that had sort of been bent in transit into place and sorted them all out um, so yep. I, have, I haven't had any breakages. I just just have to spend a few hours straightening out rifle barrels and you know machine gun stocks and that sort of thing. I think that's um, it comes to the territory of metal models, especially like World War Two. The, the bar- gun barrels just they do get bent up, and you know it's just a fact of life. You might have to straighten a few out every now and then. I, I haven't got the grace the bases graveled or primed them yet, as Having a look at them, I was sort of working out how I was going to paint them. And I've got the Vallejo Early War Forshmiega paint set. Oh, there you go. To to paint them up. And it, it seems they're probably going to be an airbrush job mm-hmm. to get the base coats, the, the, the base colours of the uniforms and stuff down. And I've got a lot of work going on at home at the minute and I haven't sort of got time already the, the mental energy to get all the airbrush set up and dedicate a yeah. whole day to spraying a load of minis it's a it's a lot of work isn't it and then you get it set up and you do it and then you got you got to clean it as well so it's, it's kind of a, a commitment isn't it it's more of a commitment than oh, i'm just going to grab a paintbrush and yeah it's I, I very 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 rarely use my airbrush to paint minis i use it to paint tanks and i use it to prime things now and again but i don't think i've actually ever used it to paint 28 mil scale figures we should we should talk to our good friend henry Steele from cult of paint about you learning more about your airbrush because i know he does courses and stuff hey henry yeah i think i definitely need to go on a an airbrushing course at some point to get the most out of my airbrush because seeing the work that people do with them it's amazing and i have a decent airbrush just don't really use it very much I mean, I I would love to have, because um, of my home life situation, child and tiny flat and so on, and and a very understanding wife, but uh, not that understanding enough to give me a dedicated table where I can airbrush. I just don't see that I I really haven't got the space to set it up and use one. But I would love to, some of the effects you can get with an airbrush are fantastic, and I just have to try and replicate them as best I can with washes and sponges and luck, <laughs> wish wishes and prayers. So after I'd got the Folsomiega sort of, I'd say, glued onto bases and then packed carefully in foam, mm-hmm. I got my Bacchus 6mm British 1815 
Army. All cleaned up. Nice. Um, put it all onto bases, uh, all painting sticks. Got it primed, painted all the bases and the bottoms of the stands, and then started on painting the line infantry. Yep. And um, what I've done with these is I'm using for the line infantry, I'm putting 24 figures on a 60 by 30 base, so yep. six stands. And what I've done is I've glued the front stand to a 60 by 30 base. So that there's three, like a full, the first full rank is there glued down. And then the second rank, I'm just, I've blue tacked to a second base to paint them. Right. But the base, like what's going to be the finished base with the one that's glued down, I've painted the whole base a dark green, including the base of the stand. Mm -hmm. And I've also painted the base of the stand of the rear rank which i'm going to glue down so then when i've that rear rank is glued onto the base the base is already painted dark green and the stand is painted as well because i find it's really difficult to paint the stands or the bases once the figures are glued down yeah that's definitely true yeah and I mean, I, all, mm -hmm. sorry. sorry go ahead andy I was just going to say that for mine, I didn't paint the wood underneath. I just used thick PVA and did the, you hope the basing material would be enough to cover up um, the sins that are underneath the, the flock and, and powders. But I think you can kind of still kind of see through it. So it's probably a good idea to paint it. I think you're doing the right thing. It's just a technique I've got into the habit of always painting my bases uh, underneath whatever I'm putting. If I'm putting a green flock on, I'll paint them green. If they're going to be muddy, I'll paint them brown. Yeah, and it just hides any chips or dips. And I started doing it really almost by mis by accident on my English Civil War when I noticed that some of the cavalry, which were on the green Redina bases, yeah, there was like little gaps in the flock where you could see the base. Yeah, and I thought actually that looks sort of quite good. So I started just painting at my bases. Yeah. Um, and so with these Napoleonics, I've realized that they are, to do them as nice as I would like to do them, and the pictures I've seen of other people's, is beyond the limit of my painting skill. I don't have the ability to do the things like to paint the webbing without going off of, uh, without making the webbing too wide and getting paint on the jackets and that sort of thing. I simply do not, my coordination isn't good enough to paint a line a tenth of a millimetre. Yeah. I, I just can't do it. So I've had to decide, it did sort of bum me out a little bit when I realized, well, these aren't as nice as I can paint, as I like to, they're a bit messy, but... I'm sort of reconciling with myself that they look fine as units and on the table, they're going to look great. If you, if you look them at them really closely, then yep, you can see there's, you know, that cuff that you've painted goes all halfway up to his elbow rather than just the cuff. Yeah. Which one of these 24 miniatures on this one base has the <laughs> extra long cuff? I can't point them out to me. Tom, I wouldn't honestly, you know what? Uh, part of take, when you take pictures on your phone, 
of models you paint. But I think of six mil in particular, it actually makes them bigger than they are in real life. It's, it's zoomed in. You can't, I, I can't, with my eyes, not as good as I used to be, I can't see. It's like, it's pretty much a money anyway when I'm looking at my six mil stuff. You can't see. On one of my bases, I glued one of the four guys, little ranks. I glued one of them the wrong way around, so they're facing backwards. And I dare you to look at this. I'll put 10 bases out. I'll give you, I'll give you like five minutes to find the base with the four guys over the wrong way around. I, I guarantee you won't find it in five minutes. Because it, 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 I've, seen, I've seen the pictures of the guys you painted and they look great. Thank yeah. you. If you zoom in, maybe they don't look as good as the Golden Demon winning entry. But, you know, when you're on the tabletop, it'll be absolutely fine. Well, what I did was, after I'd done the first unit, I realised I could make my life a lot easier by ignoring some of the detail mm -hmm. and extenuating the detail that I could paint relatively neatly. Yeah. Things like, and the backpacks, they've got like quite a large rucksack slash webbing combo. I don't know the exact terminology, what they used at the time. Yeah. It's like a small sack on the top and then they've got like tools and other bits and pieces beneath that. I've ignored the things beneath top rucksacky sort of a thing and i've just painted the white rucksack on the top everything underneath is just red coat yeah and on the helmets on the hats i've done the brass plaque in the middle of the hat i'm ignoring the tiny white stripe that goes underneath the hat because i can't paint the piece of string yeah it's fine painting these and i spent the weekend painting them and I got nine bases mm -hmm. painted of them. And so on Sunday evening, I was thinking, I was experienced a little bit disappointed that I'd spent a whole weekend painting, which I very rarely get the time to do. And I'd painted nine bases of an army that's probably 50 bases, maybe, when everything's involved. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, not going to get these done in a fortnight. Not going to get these done by the end of the month. Yeah. And I found that quite disappointing and I, I then sort of realized that i've probably slipped into the the trap of thinking i've got to get things painted a quickly and b almost like you can't have any overhang at the end of the month because it's, it's, it's a new month new project and uh, so building on something that you said earlier on that you sort of stayed up late last night to finish painting your sort of French Foreign Legion. Do you think we sort of have maybe been painting to get something done a bit more than painting to have some sort of really nice models, which it sounds like you did with the Burroughs and Badger stuff. You really took my time. You're, you're right, I did. I mean, it's it's um, partly, I think, it's expectations. I don't know what your expectations were for the six mil. Did you, were you thinking you were going to paint them much quicker than than you did? I'd not really thought of it and still hadn't really thought about how long I was going to take them. I think when I painted the six mil Romans, they probably did take me a couple of weeks to paint that army. When I painted the 10 mil Korea stuff, that took me a couple of days. Yeah. An army to paint. And it, it could possibly well be that I'd simply got so much painted this year so quickly and like 
the, the last project that took me the best part of a month was the Oathmark Army. Yeah. That was huge. And although it's only four months ago, it seems like three years in my head with the amount of hobbying I've done. Oh, yeah. So since then. I think the thing is, is Tommy, you know, Napoleonics are, are famous, you know, for having complicated sort of paint schemes for their uniforms. It's not like, oh, they're all going to be one shade of, you know, olive drab, green overalls and metal for the guns. So I think partly as expectations of, of time, but also, you know, you get to set your own um, date for when you want to have these finished by. So if you want to have them done by the end of the year or you want to have them done by tomorrow, you're, you're choosing that. No one's saying that this is the deadline for this project. It's not being imposed on you. The only deadline you've got this year, really, is for the tournament. Yeah. Because that's, that's, that has a date that's set by someone else. So if you wanted me to play Black Powder and 6 mil, great. Well, we could do that the week before Christmas or we could do it. Now, maybe sooner things open up quicker, but it's entirely up to you and, you know, and I guess your opponent as well. When, you, when are you going to have that game? So. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's probably a, a good point to be mindful that I don't think there's anything in hobby painting maybe as complicated as Napoleonic's uniforms. Like if you or complicated, please do let us know. Like possibly if you were doing some of the more complicated World War II camo patterns. Yeah. But, for example, I'm, the line infantry I'm painting, they're 6 mil, and I am using 14 paints to paint them up. Yeah. And so many steps. But I think that's your other point of the deadline and the time frame is completely of my own choosing. Yeah. And I'd sort of forgotten that, really, that I don't have to, I don't have to spend six weeks painting this army if i'm said if i can what i might well do i've just sort of in that i will probably paint all the line infantry of which i've got half of it done mm -hmm. i will paint all the line infantry because the paint's on my wet palette already yeah and it's easy i find it easier when i'm painting something that's all the same i find it easier to sort of get into the river of painting them all at once because i then know how i paint them Definitely, yeah. So I think I'll get all the line infantry painted. Then I'll take a break and paint something else and then paint another unit, of another unit type. That's exactly what I did, Tom. I painted my Prussian line infantry. I got them all done. I think I painted the unit of cuirasses as well. Uh, and I've put them away. I'm going to come back and I'm going to do some more cavalry another day. Maybe do all the hussars in one sitting. And I'll come back to them because I found it... Um, there was a little strain on my eyes. But I do think also, you know, we do set the deadlines. But I think it, it can be quite a healthy thing to give yourself a deadline because I pushed myself a little bit more. To, and, and I made it sound like I painted them entirely last night, and that's not strictly true. I've been doing little bits throughout the week, and they were almost finished. And so I stayed up late night to get them done. I mean, I'm furloughed at the moment, so it's like... If I was tired, I could drop my son off at school and then have a nap anyway. But um, I pushed myself just a little bit just to get them done because I wanted to have, I wanted to show them to you and to the guy and talk about them on the show today. So I was happy just to push myself a little bit 
harder though because i would have got them done this afternoon or this evening anyway once we've we've finished chatting i would have i would have just finished them so i just wanted to get them done before we recorded so i could proudly tell you i'm keeping up with you and your blooming 10 mil armies so i think it's good to have deadlines that you set and maybe push yourself to do things but not to the point where it impacts your mental health completely agree and that's not me farting it's a drill next door it's good <laughs> <laughs> what you said about looking at minis when they're posted pictures and that sort of thing it's very very important because i know you can look at a picture of a six mil figure and well quite often when you look at the pictures at any painted figures you can't tell if they're 112 six mil or anything really you just yeah. can't tell the scale of them and i know i saw some somebody had posted some six mil figures and i thought they are really amazing looking figures only after looking at them for ages and feeling truly despondent and my six mil painting did they realize that they were 15 mil there you go and you didn't see how much time they spent on them either you look at a picture you just see a picture they might have spent half a year working on like 10 guys to get them to the point where they look absolutely amazing but that's all they've done and well, you want yeah. to spend that many hours on 10 guys well if you do that's fine but that is not the style of painter i i, I a i can't paint that good and b i like to paint armies yeah yeah I, i'm like a journeyman i'm like a i have a workman attitude towards getting armies done i'm like this is the level i'm going to do it to and that's why doing the burrows and badger stuff was really nice because I'm like, well, you know, for once I'm actually going to stretch my skills. I'm going to research the material a bit harder. I'm going to try and do different things to get, you know, some really nice looking models. Yeah, I'm going to really take my time with these Falsham Jaeger because yeah. I think the linear. But that taking my time with them, I would hope to get a unit painted in a weekend. Yeah. Don't judge yourself against others. Learn from others' painting skills. Don't judge yourself against the best pictures on the internet. Unless you're, you know, they can go through filters. I put my pictures through filters on Instagram. Shh. Judge yourself against your own work, is what I think. And, and you know, learn from other people and just, just try your best. And don't, don't get too stressed. It's supposed to be a fun, relaxing hobby. Don't give yourself more stress than you need. And I would imagine we'll talk about this a lot more in our main segment later when we chat with Ricky. Yeah. hobby purchases i'll go first this month andy because it's yeah. going to be short and sweet purchase nothing well done tom well done keeping the cogs of industry going you should be buying more tom to help the economy that's what i think well because... i i have a reason for not buying anything this last fortnight which we'll chat about in hobby news possibly right how about yourself? How's yours? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm the worst. I'm the worst. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to spend any money. I'm going to be really good. I'm going to do five things for the whole year. I'm going to clear this pile. I'm going to do really, really good. And I'm not going to spend any money. And even last episode, when I spent more money again, I was like, there's no way I'm going to spend any more money by next episode. I'm not spending any more money in April. I'm just done. So on the, on that on that theme, here's what I bought. Um, I decided I was going to be using my DAC at, at the event coming up, 
and I may start making a few lists and I realized I needed a few bits and pieces to really flesh them out. Um, including, so I, I bought, I've got hardly any of SMGs. I wanted some SMGs to go on my SDK, um, my little Hannah mags, 250s. Um, so I ordered the sprue of DAC, just six guys that I'm going to base up, make an SMG. I did a mortar. I didn't have a mortar. So I bought a mortar. And then I tried to buy, <laughs> I messaged you about this. I tried to buy a motorcycle and sidecar. But somehow I ended up with just two guys riding on a bike. I mean, I think I can get away if I sling out a, 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 a medium machine gun on the back of one of them. I think it might be a bit cheeky. I, I don't think I don't think I can. Um, I also decided I hadn't got enough tanks and things, so I did. I went. I placed an order with Oil Drum Industries, a small company, three D printed models. Um, so I got some SDK two. 50 Hannah mags, the little, the little Hannah mags, the six man Hannah mags. I got a couple of those or three or three of those because I'm definitely not doing a Dutch East India army. I definitely am not doing that, Tom, as you know, I definitely didn't get myself a, what are they called? I can't remember these tanks. It's like a Marmon something or other. It's an American early war tank. That's got three medium machine guns on that the Dutch used in over there. So I got one, ordered one of those and an, oval wagon which has a howitzer in the back of it and, uh, and stuff so i ended up spending um 35 pounds there which isn't so bad but i wasn't supposed to be spending anything and then i've also been thinking about my storage and recommended using really useful boxes for storing models and i went online and i went to sally forth and they do divider trays, and I've ordered some of those. They haven't arrived yet, so maybe they shouldn't go, but I have spent the money. I thought I'd do them now, and I spent £20 on some divider trays that all that will be enough to do two four-litre really useful boxes, which divided in two layers that are then divided in half. I'm just going to experiment, seeing how that goes for, for storing my armies, but I managed to get... I kind of did my own ghetto one using some thick paper and, and stuff. And I managed to get um, a whole KR case into one four litre really useful box and still have loads of space. So I'll be interested to see exactly how much I can fit into two of them. And I might get rid of some of my, my KR cases. They do take up a lot of space. I think they're really good for transporting models. But because I've got such limited space, I'm not sure they're great for storing models. So uh, if you have some KR cases, Watch this space. On the Dutch in the East Indies front, May 1940s minis are bringing out a range of the KNIL. I so, had heard rumours they were hoping to do that. Is that official now? They are official and they will be out probably on Kickstarter, I think, relatively soon. Well, that's great news because, you know, I haven't quite spent enough. So, so what just, was that for your total month, Andy? I haven't finished, Tom. Oh, sorry. Jump in the gun. Um, I also ordered myself. I should just. Here's a top tip for you. Here's a money saving tip for you, Tom. Well, I want to write this one down. If you want to save some money, don't look on eBay. Top tip. If, you don't, if you're not on eBay, you won't see things and go, oh, I could get that. I went looking on eBay for Napoleonic, six mil Napoleonic war rules. 
I was having a look around to see if there's anything you know, that interested me or, you know, having a think about what people might want to play instead of black powder in six mil. Let's have a look around. And I typed in Polymos to have a look for them. Um, but they brought up the Polymos English Civil War rules. So I bought them for six pounds. It's not so much. And they've arrived. I've had a look through. Um, and in the world's quickest review, they look interesting. Um, compared to Ruse de Guerre, you, it, there's a lot more rules, but less scenarios. So work out for yourself. Loads of army lists building stuff in there. Tons and tons of army lists. Um, so haven't played them yet. But um, Ed is uh, quite interested to give me a game. We'll see if we can do it with 10 mil rather than 6 mil. But um, because we've got 10 mil armies to use. But I definitely look forward to giving that a game this year. Fingers crossed. This year. So my total, I spent, it's embarrassing, £81. And I really didn't feel like I spent very much at all. That's really the reason why we started doing this, though, isn't it? Yeah. You think you've not really purchased anything. You know, the thing you've bought is a rule set for six quid and a mortar and a motorbike. Yeah. It wasn't very much, but it, it just adds up so easily. Adds up, adds up, like 20, 20 pounds for the bike, the mortar and the sprue, six pounds for English Civil War, 20 pounds for the inserts for the really useful boxes. Then you had the bikes, they had the tanks on as well. And, you know, suddenly it's like, oh, I spent nearly £100. Hobby news. Da, 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 da. Hobby news. What's the word in the street? Well, shall we start with GW World War Two or sci-fi? GW doing a World War Two game? No. Oh, it's <laughs> GW World War Two. Okay. I got excited then. Now I think yeah I think the closest GW gone to World War Two is when they used to do Wizards with MP40s. They did release some um, German troops for Call of Cthulhu. There you go. They 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 go for a little bit of money if you can find the uh, the the German with the SMG that's for Call of Cthulhu from the eighties. It's it's not a particularly attractive model because it's a nineteen eighties sculpt. So there you go. There's your fact for the day, kids. Back to the news. Well, Cursed City, which we talked about last episode, about potentially going up on pre-order soon, has been out on pre-order and already delivered by the time this show comes yep. out. And the people who managed to get it seem really happy with it. Yep. Um, it sold out within seconds. Yep. And from what I've heard from some of the people down the club who've got it, is that while the models are fantastic, they do come with the problem of how do you transport them because of spindly so dynamic mm. and the spindly bits off the edge of the bases. Yep. And but that's that came out, it was it's 125 pounds. Oh, it's gorgeous, gorgeous models. Looks like a really good game. Really nice models. Um, be interesting to see. If it comes back into stock, when it comes back into stock. Well, they have made a statement that it's going to be a permanent product they're going to have. They had limited numbers because, you know, they're working under COVID restrictions, lockdown here in the UK. Um, it's going to be, it's not going to be, um, you know, limited run like some of the sets they bring out. 
I think it, it would be really interesting to know what GW's plan is going forward with their sort of supply levels and the fact that when things go on pre-order, in nearly all near everything almost sells out always within sixty seconds, mm-hmm. and then how much the scalpers charge for things on eBay, like the dice sets and things like that. Yeah, um, I actually have been keeping track. I went and had a little look before we talked because I've I put some bids on some things from the Cursed City because I'd like the rats for Zona Alpha because there's mutant rats in that game. I just would like to have them, and I actually think it works out a little bit cheaper to pick up the Cursed City rats looking at on eBay than it would be to go and buy individual rat packs and, and from other things. Um, and I'm really pleased to see that there's a few models that seem to be going for like £25 a piece, like the Witch Hunter guy with the crossbow state gun thing. But most of them seem to be going sort of like £8 or so. They don't seem to be going that crazy. And even... I mean, the, I haven't checked out the final sales prices, but even like the the big box games is because like 140 pounds. So people are sort of paying maybe an extra 15 quid or something for um, you know the game. But if the scalpers were looking to rip people off, it doesn't seem to be happening so much with this game as I thought it might do. I haven't, to be honest, checked the price of the games. I, I did have a look at the prices of the dice, and I know. The last time I wanted to buy a set of the dice was the Lord, a set of Lord of the Rings dice. Mm-hmm. And by, I think they'd gone on sale at 10 or 11 a.m. whenever GW stuff goes on pre-order. And within hours, they were on eBay for three times the price. Yeah. I don't know what it is about the dice. The dice just go crazy. It's like, if you, if you can't get the dice, it seems straight away, it seems like, then they just go for ridiculous money, so just give up. <laughs> Unless you're a lot richer than me. But maybe that's because I spent eighty one pounds accidentally. But in, in in positive GW news, I noticed uh while I was sort of looking around the GW site, which is a site I don't look around very much these days to be honest. I, I noticed the precept manipul battle force for Titanicus. Yeah. Yep. Which is up for pre order and is hundred and ten pounds. And looking at the price of mech models I actually think that is quite good value. Yeah. Because I was looking at the price of, I was looking at buying some mechs to play Gamma Wolves with. Mm-hmm. And like medium sized robot models and big robot models and mechs are really seem to be a really expensive genre of model mm-hmm. to buy. So I think £110 for an army of them, an entire force, I think is, is pretty good value. Oh, yeah. And they look quite cool. Because who really doesn't want a load of Titans well, if you've ever played 40k? I just haven't got, yeah, the bandwidth, as they say, to be concentrating on mechs and everything else. And, you know, what, GW, I don't care what you say, they do make some of the nicest models out there. Like, they just are great-looking models. Oh, yeah, well, the new Blood Bowl team, the Imperial Nobility, are the Boghafen Barons, or however you pronounce them. I really, really like the look of them. And I think next time I play, start playing Blood Bowl, I might have to pick up the team of those. And they're £25 for the team. Mm-hmm. And the the last team I bought was from a, a third-party seller. I think it was probably at least twice that. Um, I'll be honest with you, Tom. I, 
I completely disagree with you. I hate the aesthetic of that Imperial Noble team. I uh, I, I hate all the feathers. I like hate it so much. But I know, like, if you love feathers, it's a really nice team and it's really great. But for me, I was like, I, I had thought about picking up the new starter set and it was literally all the feathers on that team. I was just like, nah. Because I have got the orcs, um, the black orcs. I bought the black orc, the troll. Baragul Chua. I think they're all fantastic models, but um, stylistically, it's uh, what they say, um, subjective, not objective art, isn't it? So, you know, each to their own. If you love them, you go get them. Oh, I, I just like the, the old Empire vibes. And there is a couple of, uh, there's the Blood Bowl Death Zone, which is an update for Blood Bowl, I think that's coming out for all the Blood Bowl players. I don't know how popular blood bowl is in the the wider hobby community but no down at our club it's incredibly popular yeah um talking about beautiful models that are coming out and kind of linking it a little bit back into cursed city and other things because i've got a necromantic team that i haven't started painting it because i thought they look amazing as well and i'm just waiting for my orange contrast paint to arrive from right from goblin gaming and they've actually been in contact with me and let me know that um they're waiting for the green stuff uh, to come back into stock before they can send the whole order out. And if I, I said if I wanted to change it, I could do. So I actually emailed them today and said, you know what, don't bother with the green stuff, drop it from the order, and replace it with a copy of the Crimson Court, <laughs> the vampires. Yeah, for the, the underworld's diachasm. I said, let me know how much extra that will be. Just I just yeah, just drop the green stuff and chuck it. But because they've got it for, on like down from 25 to 20 quid. So it's five pounds for those four amazing looking vampire models and if i actually wanted to play with underworlds i'd actually have a, a gang whatever they're called to use to try out the game so i've never played it people seem to really love it at the club i just wanted the vampires because they look amazing i thought i would just really enjoy painting them oh so, i they were on my list of things to try but i think they are cracking looking models i think they i think a, a four pack of character models which you, you picked up for £20. Yeah. I think it's... I haven't paid the money yet, so it doesn't go on the purchase. <laughs> I stay under 100 quid. I, d I don't think you can moan at that for a price point. I think you have to say that's a decent price for... Well, how much does, does an HQ, like, model at Games Workshop go? Have a quick look, Tom. Tell me how much it go for normally. Between okay. 15 and £18. Pounds. So hypothetically, those four models by themselves could have been like sixty quid. Yeah, and that doesn't. And you get all the tokens and bits and bobs as well, which I probably yeah. will stick in a bag and keep for you know for any tokens or something. Well, I, I think they are the nicest vampire models I've ever seen from anyone anywhere. Yeah, yeah, and I have a soft spot for vampires and undead. And there's some more to come out, I think, from what will be the new vampire counts. Yeah, range, whatever it's called when it comes out for Age of Sigmar. So there's a lady with bats in her hair. Yeah, and I quite what I particularly like about that model is that it's on like a in the picture it seems to be on like a bike base. Oh yeah, and, and her hair is in, and she's got her dress that she's wearing is like a long train, mm -hmm. and the hair is in line with the train, so it all fits on the base. Nice. So it's not like this is. It, she's not going to need to be in like a, 
the storage space of a dreadnought, but it's going to be fits in that cavalry base. Yeah. So the Bad Squidow Soviet Women Kickstarter will have finished by the time this podcast goes live because it was only <laughs> running from Wednesday to Wednesday. But it's good to see that it's already been funded as of yesterday, Tuesday, it had reached about 13,000. It's always good to have more models available if people want to buy them. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'd give a, a shout out to Annie, hopefully that she's feeling better and on the mend soon, because I know she's put a post up this morning about uh, latest trials and tribulations with her health. Yeah, all the Danny. I'm sure she listens about fail every week. So our show, but if she is listening, we hope she's well. And then moving on to what's my last bit of hobby news for this week is the Nick starter for Stargrave. Oh yes. The pledge levels are £45 for a, the Stargrave rulebook and a box of your choice. The choices are for the Stargrave crew, the Stargrave mercenaries, or the Stargrave troopers. They each other and box deal, you just collect what, which one you want. There is also a three box deal, which mm-hmm. is £50 for all three boxes, or £75, which gives you the book and all three boxes. That's pretty good. The add-ons you can buy are the loot pack, which are five loot markers, which you can add to your order and for six pounds. And some robots and old rogues. Mm-hmm. The robots are additional five pound fifty, and the old rogues, which are the characters from the book, are sixteen pounds fifty. Yeah. And the unlocks for the Nickstarter range from some metal figures, including a medic, a rogue, a hacker, some loot markers, uh, null frame, uh, mystic, some wizardy type things, some creatures. And if it reaches the full level of £80,000, you'll also get a cultist frame. So you're looking at like, you know, at least half a dozen extra minis, a couple of plastic sprues of each half a dozen figures, a dice, and some loot markers if you back one yeah. of these deals. I'll be honest, Tom, I see myself spending £45 before the end of the month. I do as well. I have already got a crew on the way. Yeah. But I, I see myself buying the crew box and the, the book. Again, the extra minis will be nice. As well, I'll probably pick up the loot tokens as well. And yeah, I, I think I, I will probably back that. Um, I was thinking to... mercenaries for my guy. I was going to get the mercenaries because obviously I've got my space goats already painted up, ready to go as a crew. But I think you need to have some some pirate models, if I've read some reports correctly, because they end up coming on the board as like wandering kind of guys. So I was thinking the mercenaries would be good to make some some pirates with. But it looks like it looks like a, all the extra bits look really good. We could maybe even do a thing of if I get some crew and you get. The mercenaries, we could maybe swap, swap a sprue or something. I know uh, Tim, um, our our plastic crack friend, <laughs> the guy, the guy, the club who likes to help us all to get lots of sprues of plastic models, um, was talking about maybe organising a, a a buy-in as as a club and and then dividing up the stuff. So I don't know if he's going to be doing that or not, but um, 
even so, I think it's just such a good value, isn't it, at this point? Yeah, I think it. I don't think you can moan at forty-five pounds for a box that will give you enough minis to play more than enough minis to play the thing and the rule book. I think it's, and it seems to be a game that's going to be popular down the club. Yeah, it's going to be popular for sure. Well, probably. I'm not going to back it just now. I'm going to see if anything else crops up this month, as I'm supposedly trying not to spend money this month. But we'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, the damage is done, Tom, for me so far. So, do you have any hobby news? I just, just, just one. Um, do I have any? Uh, yes. Um, so, just before we came on, I went had a quick look at Kickstarter, and I saw there's um, a Kickstarter running for STL files for British line infantry, and they looked lovely. It was like thirty pounds for the STL files to print all the guys off and um, you could pay 130 quid and then have a license so you can print and sell them yeah so you could back for like a covered shako uncovered shako or both of them or get the license but I thought there's so many more um, kickstarts just for the STL files for different things and printing them out you know there's just going to be so much stuff out there that's so good and I was tempted to get it myself just to get someone else to start printing me out some British Napoleonics, because, you know, I haven't got enough models to paint, have I? Talking to John, uh, Aldrum Industries, um, he was, he sat down here to, to explain to me, but it's the cost of the resin, isn't it? Isn't It's, you, know, you stop buying plastic and, and, um, and lead mods and just buy resin, and then you choose how you're going to use that resin, what you're going to print with that resin. Um, that's the, that, that becomes the cost, and you need to weigh up, you know, whether it's cost effective, I guess. I, I could, I could, it's possible it might well be cost effective. I, I don't know. I just think it, it would be something I would be mindful of when, especially when there are ready available alternatives that you can buy. Where I think at the moment I see resin printing really being invaluable is for things that you can't readily buy. Hi, Andy here. Thanks for listening to Hobby Support Group. If you're listening on Spotify, can I ask you just to click on and subscribe to us? That'll be a really big help. Just just get your get your phone, what you ever use, and, and go on and, and just subscribe. And then you'll never miss me or Tom ever again. And thanks again for listening to Hobby Support Group. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. The main segment. Hi everyone, we're, we're here. We have made it all the way to the main segment of the show, and Tom and I are really uh, glad to welcome uh, Ricky to the show. Hi, Ricky. Hi, everybody. How are you all in the wide world? <laughs> Thank you for having me on today. Love it. It's our pleasure. Um, I know you, you know Tom a little bit better than me, um, but I, I know you um, are more of an expert than us on accessibility. Is that right? Uh, it is. Yes. Uh, I would. Well. A little bit of background, uh, so that the listeners out there know a little bit about me, I suppose. Uh, obviously, my name is Ricky. Uh, I was uh, born with a uh, hereditary uh, condition, which meant that I um, gradually lost my sight from the age of two uh, up until about the age of 14, where I was registered blind. Then, luckily, at the age of 18, I was given some sight back through uh, eye surgery. Uh 
And uh, although I'm not fully sighted, I'm still partially sighted uh, in regards to that. Um, I can see somewhat. But that's not really why I'm here. The reason I'm here is because uh, I'm a gamer. Uh, you know, I, I do the hobby, as it were. You know, I, 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 I play tabletop war games. I play tabletop RPGs. I LARP. That, that is my passion. But as a side interest, I've done a little bit of study into uh, visual impairment uh, and accessibility over the years through my master's degree, my, my undergraduate study. Um, so I thought, uh, well, Tom thought it would be uh, interesting to, to invite me in to the show today. So you're letting us know you're horribly overqualified to be on our little podcast, is what you're saying? I wouldn't say that. Um I, I could be more qualified. Uh, I'm not going to, though. <laughs> not in the time space. <laughs> Lovely. I know we reached out to the community, Tom, to ask um, if I had any particular questions. So do you want to maybe start with the first one there, Tom? First question we got was from the hate group. And this the question is, hate and other clubs I attend are super noisy environments. What can we do about this for people who are affected by loud noises who have hearing problems? I think I should explain to, to Ricky that the hate group is, is a lot nicer than it sounds. The Hackney area tabletop enthusiasts are not a bunch of nasty people. As somebody that has partial hearing, I completely empathise with this question. And I have two ways of dealing with it. Number one is at our club specifically, we have a Wednesday night and we have a Sunday afternoon. Wednesday night is super busy, super loud quite boisterous you know people have come down after work had a few beers can be a bit uh mm. loud definitely loud sunday afternoon much quieter much more chilled out noticeably it's a it's a completely different atmosphere so if i need to have a quiet game i go on a sunday afternoon wednesday evening no it's going to be loud no i'm i'm the same tom and you know if, if... Try and do role playing in the main bar area. It just wouldn't. I couldn't immerse myself in the amount of noise that's going on. I know we, our group, the last group I was playing in, we we met through the hate group, but we then went to the DM's house to run it because we could have a quiet space. He could control the music level that was there. Uh, I. Um, have a similar situation in my local club uh, where I do run D&D in a very, well, let's just say it's an old Victorian school and uh, we play in the school sports hall. So you can imagine how echoey uh, that is on top of everything else. Uh, um, and because we're based in Newcastle, uh, everybody is loud and everybody is boisterous and we all just shout over each other uh, and it does cause a lot of a lot of issues um, well not not the loud shoutiness that's you know all good fun but in, in terms of trying to communicate anything more complex than you know roll your dice it becomes tricky which you know I, I can't the, the problem is with this question I don't know what the answer is. Uh, obviously, we've all just explained what that we empathise with the problem. Yeah. But is there a solution? I mean, the solution that we, for my role-playing group, came up with was just to go to a different location, using that as the main 
place where we could meet to organize um, and meet the people that we're going to be role playing with, but then taking it to a secondary location where there was no noise. I mean, you can't remove the noise from the bar, <laughs> partly because of the beer, but, you know, and everyone being there, it's just a noisy dice rolling. I mean, the mats we have now, the, the, they're more like a spongy neoprene mats. So the dice rolling noise has been vastly reduced. So that's one good thing we've got to reduce the noise, but just the hubbub of, you know, 60 odd people playing games, just if, if everyone was whispering, it would still be really noisy. So we just had to take that away to a, a secondary location where we could just um, have a more controlled volume in that space and control what was going on. I think it, this is possibly something that might come up a lot during this evening. And I know in my professional work, I, I work a lot in mental health and teaching in neurodiverse environments. I think we might come across quite a lot this evening that we the suggestions we come up with are actually to do things not quite as inclusive as we would like to be to make yeah. sure that everyone's needs and requirements are met one of the things actually i noticed uh uk games expo is the fact that they uh place the role-playing area in a carpeted room which does vastly reduce the amount that the sound carries say you didn't have a fixed venue for running a game then then perhaps looking at sound like a, an area that is more soundproofing so obviously if you've got a shiny floor it's gonna the sound waves are gonna bounce around the room and, and cause a lot of uh, offset in terms of directional sounds if you've got a carpeted room it's going to be a lot more um muted and there, there is a stark difference between say the exhibition areas at the the uh NEC to the the hilton where they, they run the role play stuff where it's all sort of carpeted conference rooms um and it is a lot i mean it's, there's still that sound issue there because you've got 30 40 people in a room all trying to play dungeons and dragons or what, whatever game they're playing but it is easier in that environment i think that's similar to dragon meat where you've got probably hundreds of people in the main hall playing a game but because i had never really tweaked that maybe because it is in a a carpeted hotel conference suite it isn't as loud as if it is in a big hall it's not like it is at excel or salute or something like that so uh, yeah the the other thing that just popped into my mind as well is stuff like uh seating arrangements so if somebody is having uh sensory issues in terms of sound it might be worth seating them next to a wall as well because that be, you know, that reduces the amount of sound that is in the area mm. um it means that it becomes more monodirectional uh it, i mean it doesn't help with if people suffer with filtering issues but in, in terms of trying to manage the sound sitting by a wall with your back to the wall is is usually a a tip <laughs> yeah. and in that regard sort of where you sit and things Bagsying a seat next to the DM is something that, you know, and if somebody sat, already sat there, just say, excuse me, can I sit there so I can hear? It's it's not brilliant, but I know it's what I have to do in, in my games. And if I can get a seat that also gets me an eye line so I can lip read as well, just mm-hmm. is, you know, win, win all round. I was wondering if you could put curtains up. Would curtains make a bit of a difference to make a dampening to the sound as well? It could do. I thought, um, I thought it 
the expert here. I'm literally throwing this out like wood curtains, man. Could you put curtains up? Again, I'm not. I'm not particularly an expert. Um, these That's are just out then. bits and pieces <laughs> of, of, uh, of the years from a personal experience. Um, I probably would. Uh, I mean, it would have to be sort of like wall height curtains, or at least higher than the noise. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I'm not an acoustic engineer either. I mean, I'm sure there's. You're an acoustic engineer, and you're listening right now. Perhaps you can let us know. Second question: Are bonus points for fully painted armies inherently ableist? For a lot of people, you know, painting their army is the main thing they're interested in doing. Like, really, you know, taking the time to make a really great, um, looking great painted army. So I feel like in some situations, if you're entering a painting competition, it has to be judged on the quality of the paint job. You, you know. Now, what is my point that I'm trying to make? <laughs> Are you trying to say that if you're entering the best painted, then it's the quality of the paint job? I know that in some rule system at the moment, you score victory points for having a fully painted army, don't you? I think so. Is having bonus points or, or points awarded inherently ableist? I think it comes down to the tournament organizer or the event organizer. When I organized the point scheme for the bolt action event I ran, that was pointed as you got five points. It was three games. You got five points for a victory and a bonus point. But I also awarded five points based on painting. Yeah. It was on a metric, which was in a way I designed the metric to reward effort rather than necessarily skill. So it was, you've got a point if ev if every model was painted. Yeah. You've got a point if every model was based. You've got a second point if the bases had, had something to liven them up a bit. So if it was just a paint a base that's painted goblin green, you got one point. If it was flog flocked, had some tufts on it, you got two points. You got a point if you'd used any decals or markings or anything so you could differentiate between the units. And then there was a the final point was if it looked like a complete army and not just a collection of individual units that hadn't been dragged together off of the shelf or bought off eBay and chucked together. And that's how I awarded the five points for the army. And I think everybody got five points. I think maybe one person didn't because they were using a bunch of die-cast toy uh, vehicles and they were just in the original. They'd not repainted them. They were just yeah. as they'd got them at the box. And I thought that was a little bit cheeky. You can have a separate competition from the main competition for painters as well. Normally you go there and they'll say, right, Put your best painted model over here. We'll judge the best painted army, and that's completely separate from. Yeah, that's what we did at Fortress Hackney. There was at lunchtime we awarded best painted. It it was an yeah. ancillary competition. It didn't winning best painted didn't give you more points in the overall event. It was just whoever had the nicest looking army. Yeah, one. I think, and I think that's for me. That's just. A, a separate skill. Like, I'm never going to win best painted. Yeah. So affirmative there, Tom. <laughs> I have. I, I can't. Earlier on this episode, I was talking about so I had the six mil stuff. 
is the limit of my painting skill. Yeah. Because of my dyspraxia and my musculoskeletal thing, I just do not have fine enough motor skills to paint really nicely. I can paint all right, but I'm never going to win a best painted. And that's, I'm, I'm all right with that. Yeah. I mean, same here for me. I, I, I've noticed in the last few years that my eyesight has been, I'm over, I'm, I'm come up for 50 now and my eyes are just getting a bit tired and I, and I, I'll, I'll pull my phone away from, to look at it, to read what I'm reading on the screen. And, and like when I get the models in close, I've got a little headset to help me focus on the models and I'm painting, but I've noticed my eyesight's getting worse, but I, I, I don't mind, you know, it's just, you know, you do, you do a good, you do the best paint job you can do, don't you? You know? Yeah, I think that's probably my time to uh, to wade in on the conversation. Uh, uh, painting is a, a bit of uh, a mixed bag for me, I have to admit. It is the part of the hobby that I do not enjoy um, at all. I say at all. No, that's, that's a lie. Uh, one thing I was very happy with uh, last year was Games Workshop releasing the contrast paints. Uh, I got a set of the contrast paints. Uh, what was great about those is prior to using contrast paints, I was using washes. Because mm -hmm. washes will uh, highlight, not, not highlight as in highlighting the model, but it will darken the shadows in the model and they'll make the contrast of the model yes. better, which means that I can see more detail on the model itself, which means that I can paint. Now, contrast, obviously, is is very thin and it gives that same coverage that, that inks would but also with the added sort of acrylicness over the top, which is absolutely fantastic. So I got myself a set of contrast paints, and I've, I've occasionally sat myself sat myself down and painted. Can only do about twenty minutes at a time. As I say, it's it's not great because I can't see, but where I miss detail, I play with color. Yeah. So rather than uh, I've got, uh, I'm just looking at this at, at, at the shelf in my room. I've got a 2000 point painted Warhammer, old Warhammer, Warriors of Chaos Army. Mm. But I didn't didn't use any Warriors of Chaos. I used all Marauders, Ogres, and Giants. The reason I did that is because I could use washes and stuff to bring up the flesh tones and, yeah. and make them pop. So they've got dark clothing, bright skin. Yeah. And the bases contrast with that in greys rather than browns and, and flesh. So the, there's greys and whites on the bases with a bit of sort of like hay coloured static grass on there as well, uh, which makes the whole the whole model pop. Now, as I say, the detail is absolutely rubbish because I can't see the detail. Yeah. But neither can someone else standing across the table from these models. So it doesn't particularly matter that that you can't see the details. It's about the yeah. aesthetic of the army. Uh, together, the army looks very, very coherent. Whether or not you know, I've missed, a, you know, I've glued someone's head on upside down, or you know, I've uh, put the wrong color on. I've painted an axe brown by accident, thinking it looked mm -hmm. like wood or something like that. You know, the, it, that's that's my approach to painting. I think one one of the best examples of this is uh, I was talking to someone about painting realistic models. Yeah, uh, doing eyes, and if you take the measurement of the pupil, and then scale it down to twenty-eight mil, a lot of the the eyes that people paint onto models would be most of your eyeball 
you know and this is this is professional painters because of yeah. the the heroic scale that people are normally used to painting and stuff you know a pupil is very very tiny yeah and and as you as you scale it down it only gets smaller strangely enough um so so you know i don't even bother painting the eyes it might get a, yeah. a white blob or something occasionally or you know, a space marine i do his eye lenses because it's quite a big surface that's the other thing i've very much enjoyed about games workshop releasing the primaris marines because they're very bland but in a good way it means that i can paint the model and not worry about the detail because there isn't particularly a lot of detail on there there's a lot of nice smooth lines and a lot of interesting curves and things that i can i can i can use and the thing that that i loved about coming back to the contrast paints in that respect is with the space brain i've got just enough sight that i can tell that i can't dry brush and i can't edge highlight for toffee with the primaris and the contrast paints what i was able to do was put the paint onto the uh, an armor plate I was then able to blot the paint along the line rather than painting onto the line, allowing a lighter shade to come up, come through underneath. And that way I can edge highlight the Marines without putting paint on the model, but taking paint off the model. And that became a, a bit of a game changer in terms of my, my perspective uh, on painting. Now, bringing that back to points, awarding points for painting, I think, you, I think you've said said before it depends on the environment is your tournament is your league based around the hobby or the game if it's about the hobby then obviously painting needs to be a part of it and that could potentially be a problematic part if you had somebody with no sight they won't be able to paint their models and what you're essentially saying to that person is well you can get into this game but you need to pay more to have someone paint your or or have favors to get someone to paint your models for you in order yeah. to achieve despite, despite what your your skill is. To be fair, it doesn't stop anybody using a professional painter to paint their army for them to bring it along to your tournament to get those get those extra uh, 10 percent of the points that using a a rule system that we might be alluding to. Um, it doesn't stop anybody doing that. But it forces someone who wants to compete competitively, but does have those barriers in order to to compete. Yeah. Do you think that comes down more on the side of the games manufacturers and TOs than as individual hobbyists in that? You know, if if you're making a game which has got you know ten percent of the points in an event or a league come down to the quality of the paint job. Do you think that is, is maybe something that game manufacturers should think about when coming up with rules or thinking this could be a barrier to entry? Well, it is a barrier to entry. Whether whether or not you are visually impaired or not, whether it, it's that's about your your skill, and some people are more skilled than others in, in terms of, of painting, and those people should be, yes, awarded for that skill, but also, other, should other people be penalised for their lack of that skill? It could be. It could not. It might not be to do with practice. It could just be that they're not very good painters. Yeah, I think that that a decision to maybe put that in a rule book, sort of as the core rules of a game, might be a little bit short sighted. But to do it as a TO, again, it, it's what do you want? What is the purpose of your tournament? 
is it to show the whole hobby? At which point, yes, painting a, a cumin, acumen should be rewarded. Is it a who knows the rules best, or not who knows the rules best, but who can manipulate those rules to become the 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 most impressive general? Do you think it also comes down to the? We've talked about the style of game, but actually maybe different genres of game as well. Like off the top of my head, when I think of points for painting, I think three color minimum tabletop standard armies for yeah. things like 40k or whatever and in my experience they were there so if a new codex came out it was to stop people everybody having the latest army at the next tournament the following week it was designed simply to slow people down and stop people constantly chasing the meta and i think maybe for a competitive environment that's what i see you can look at, say, the board gaming community in terms of, say, because people do, uh, like, uh, Settlers of Catan tournament. Now, mm-hmm. you don't turn up to your Settlers of Catan tournament with your own game pieces, all, you know, your little cities all built, uh, painted up lovely. You turn up, with, you turn up and use the wooden pieces that come out of the box that aren't painted or anything like that. A lot of other board games, you know, I've seen a lot of people play stuff like Zombicide. They don't paint the miniatures because there's hundreds and hundreds of zombies. A lot of people do because people enjoy painting but then a lot of people don't so it's it's a difficult one because the the value that painted miniatures provide is in 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 terms of an aesthetic on the table is uh you know it's that that's uncalculable um well i say that it's it's worth 10 points the the question is it is it necessary for is it necessary for the game also is it going to actually di- dissuade anyone from playing the game yeah it does and that that's for people who just can't paint mm-hmm. i'm sure people who just can't simply can't paint that for whatever reason um just don't think they can you know it's a lot of money to spend on an army and then if you think you can't do a decent paint job on it you think well i'll just cut my loss and not play the game at all yeah so is it is it a question that it's ableist or is it just gatekeeping? I would go down the route of its gatekeeping. So I think looking it's... at these sort of tournaments in the media, uh, say you go along to Games Workshop's GT. I don't know if they have GTs anymore. They used to, so I'll talk about those. Grand Tournament, Throne Schools, whatever it was called. You go along, you're there at a premier event to play Warhammer. What Games Workshop's interested in, it's not interested in who's the best Warhammer player in the world. Why would they be interested in that? That's, you know, that's a moot point. What they're interested in is showing off the hobby. Yeah. So it's in their interest to award well-painted armies to ensure that those armies turn up to the Grand Tournament. Now, it doesn't matter if that person's painted it, somebody else has painted it, you know, inherited it off eBay, as long as it's... Games, uh, the the company's models and painted it looks good in the in the camera shots so it promotes the game mm-hmm. and i don't particularly have an issue with that because they're a company wanting to wait, make money the issue i think comes from the tournaments outside of that now again tournaments need to promote 
you know, Las Vegas Open or Adapticon, you know, these big, big tournaments, they need to promote themselves uh, going forward. But is there, I mean, the real question is, is there something that could be substituted for that painting skill that takes an equivalent time and equivalent effort that individuals could use as a, as a stand-in? Well, I have seen some events have run a thing where you could get, you could write background fluff for your armies and that they, they would award fluff, they would award points for fluff, I think, or painting. I think that's, that's possibly one way around it. But I think, again, it's a, a gatekeeping issue, isn't it? If, if yeah. you're making, you know, something like Las Vegas Open or Adepticon, which have, you know, each year you see the horror stories of the armies that people have taken. And if it wasn't, if it was a complete, you know, just bring whatever is grey plastic, then, you know, I would think there would be a high probability of 400 players. You would have 300 people taking the exact same list of what is the current flavour of the month that week. If they could just go out, buy that army and print, play it. I did see um, pictures of an army that was taken to a, a tournament somewhere and it was an, a, a, like an ogre's army for, for Warhammer. And they literally got a can of spray, sprayed it one colour, then sprayed another colour, and then sprayed it with like three bands of colour. So it was the three colour minimum. It met all the requirements, though obviously not quite in the spirit of what it was intended. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all go and do that, but that was just that person wanted to take an ogre army, hadn't got the skill to paint it, and kind of felt they had to ruin their models by doing that spray job just to be able to play. So, I mean, it was kind of showing around, look, look how this terrible thing this person did. But at the same point is like, I'm sure if they could have had it nicely painted, they would have rather had them painted nicely. Do you know what? One of my favourite armies to play against in, in, in 40k is are demon armies. And the reason I like playing against demon armies is because the Nurgle units are green, the corn units are red, the Zinch units are blue, and the Slanesh units are purple. And I can identify what the units are <laughs> from across the table. So there isn't there is some merit in in a more basic, bright, sort of token-esque approach to your to, to your miniatures. Um but obviously in your example, they they were taking the make, weren't they? Yeah. That's that's not not how it goes. I remember the first time I went to the club and, and played like two fully painted armies, me and my friend, two fully painted armies. And we had like a gaming mat and we had terrain set up. And I was like, this looks like a white dwarf photo shoot. This is incredible. <laughs> no more playing at home with cereal packets and unpainted models. You know, it was a real experience. It just felt that was what I'd come to like, always wanted to have as my gaming experience. Now I was having getting to do it for real at the club. But that was, is that partly the expectation of like just having this, what, you, what I'm expecting from the, from the White Dwarf pictures? and Something I've thought for a long time would be cool to see more of, but I don't know how it would really work. I know GW have been doing it a little bit more, is to see more realistic painted armies. And, and see m more photographs of minis that are painted by 
the average painter yeah because i'm sure what you see on hobby blogs and shared across all the different hobby media you're seeing probably like the fraction of one percent of all painted minis i think it would be much better off seeing it what is what does the standard primaris marine look like that the average person has painted i think more of that style of painting being shared and shown around would be a lot better i think it would make everybody feel better about their painting because you know you're quite often being when the the, the standard that you're shown all the time is the absolute international creme de la creme of professional artists and you think well this is what i have to judge myself against or if, if you're a hobby if you're into sports or something like that you don't try and run four minute miles i think well that's what i have to be doing yeah i'm not i'm not keeping up with you saying bolt i must be really slow yeah whereas i think in in the hobbying i think that it, that is slightly different because we just see that golden demon style so often you think well that is the benchmark that i should be trying to achieve and it's just impractical i believe for the vast vast majority of people yeah to get anywhere near that and just think, no that is a different that you have to be a gifted skilled artist to achieve that style of work and it's just not yeah i mean we've talked before i'm i'm very much a journeyman kind of i try and get my models painted to a level i'm not doing you know anything too far i'm not going to start i'm not going to start doing freehand on every single model or because i just haven't got the skills but i want it to look good on the table and people can see what it is and you know to a, to, a, to a level that I think is acceptable. Tabletop standard, I think, is what I call my stuff. Um, yeah. you know, Mine, you, mine's across the room standard, but, you know, I'm happy with that. <laughs> you know, I know my limits. Well, I, I, you were saying about eyeballs. And I don't do I don't paint <laughs> eyes either. Yeah. Because, you know what? If, if I was in the park, say distance-wise, the equivalent of being across the park from someone, I couldn't tell them if you had blue or brown eyes. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I don't, is where the eyes are. You know, twenty-eight mil or below, I don't pay paint eyes or mouths or anything. I do the face in the flesh color, give it a flesh wash if I'm feeling fancy, and might do like a tiny highlight on the forehead and the nose with a lighter flesh, and that's it. Yeah. What could manufacturers and game designers do to make their games inclusive, either in the rules they write or the formats they release them in? So, in in terms of this particular point, what one of the things I first noticed uh, with the latest edition of Warhammer Forty Thousand, the the call rulebook did a lot right. The way in which it was presented on the paper, like just physically on the paper, it had a lot of white space. It was short paragraphs. It was very clear language that was used, and I really enjoyed that. The problem then was they also at the same time as announcing these little snippets of rules as as it was coming out, they uh, brought in a system where you use little pictures of various numbers of bullet holes to determine what sort of gun it is in the the little sheet of rules that comes in with the models themselves. I was like, well, you've done all this work on the on the call rule book. You've made it very accessible, very 
able to read it. And now you're using pictograms, very complex pictograms to represent game <laughs> elements on the other bits and pieces. Maybe they, they must have got the dice designer to do those pictograms. It's well, they're, they're blooming dice and how hard those are to read. <laughs> I've got a polka dot green and red dice with grey spots for the numbers or something. And they use symbols or something weird. It's like, oh. oh it's, it's, a, it's a squig dice where you have to start oh, counting teeth. I've got a set of those. I can't read them and I lose them all the time. They're fantastic. <laughs> they just bounce everywhere. Um, anyway, I never use them for gaming. <laughs> Throw them at cat. Um... <laughs> So yeah, so the the core rulebook for um, Warhammer Forty Thousand is really good. The say the Dungeons and Dragons Monster Man, uh, no Monster Manual, Player's Handbook, the the rulebook that you'd use for for Dungeons and Dragons, has a lot of cream coloured pages with red text on, uh, with very long complex paragraphs, mm-hmm. uh, and an index that is minute and very unstructured um it, it's 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 amazing you you look up a reference and it always says see another reference rather than just having the page number there which would be much easier especially for a, a reference sorry i work in a library this sort of stuff gets on my nerves anyway so they're they're the two very popular rule books in in the media one has done it very very clearly oriented towards accessibility in a in a standard way the other hasn't although dnd is getting better the latest um, rules updates tasha's cauldron of everything which i have behind mm-hmm. myself um they they have it looks like they have got some sort of accessibility advisor on that is giving giving them advice because it's, it's got a lot clearer since still not great but that's just wizards of the coast um so in terms of advice that I would give games manufacturers making at least from a printed media point of view would be to follow there's a set of guidelines called web content accessibility guidelines or WCAG which was developed by the worldwide consortium or W3C which is lots of acronyms which is great it's a website that will guide it's it's designed for digital content it's designed for websites and PDFs and things like that but it creates a standard in terms of accessibility and it talks about things like clear language lots Mm -hmm. of use of white space making sure that you know your print isn't isn't you know, scribble text, using the right fonts and, and that sort of thing. And if there is any, say, independent or even major um, games companies out there listening, please follow the WCAG guidelines because it does help people access your content. It allows them to read it. It allows them to use alternative formats such as Braille, large print, screen readers, that sort of thing, to access your rules, which is obviously point one of learning a game is access to the rules. It's going to help. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's my tirade. I think you, you you've picked up there, Akil, a lot of the things I particularly hate. I think the the, the yellow panels with then tiny text, you know, the red text, quite often like a different shade of yellow in a cursive font that is tiny, or here's a huge panel of text, and then there's going to be like a tiny little breakout window. 
um, in this huge body of text which has got an important rule in it but the other half of the rule is in this main body of text it isn't together so it's like what is the actual rule and then you, you look up the reference and you look up the page and it's like where is this it's almost like a reading comprehension to work out yeah. and then the page number is uh not on that page because there's an image where the page number should be and um, yes oh what one of my favorites is when they put um red on gray because i'm a touch color blind so i'm like i just i can i can tell there's writing there <laughs> <laughs> if I focus really hard, I might be able to read it really slowly, but did no one check with anyone who was colorblind before they decided to do like red on gray? A rule book for me should really be a rule book and not an art book. I, I'm not interested in the art really. I just want the rules for the book, not go, ooh, look at this fancy three-quarter page image with the, all the text down this tiny little column in the side so I can see this fancy wizard in the middle. And just give me the text so I can read it easily. And having all that yeah. empty space and so you can look things up, it's easier and more accessible for it, everyone. Yeah, it doesn't need to look like it's written on vellum with uh, illuminated letters if it's telling me how to move a space marine across yeah. across the table. You, you would think it'd be quite an easy thing to make just a plain kind of PDF. Just like take all the fancy pictures out and just have the text in like sensible boxes. It's actually taking stuff, it's not adding stuff and it's taking it away. And maybe I'm just naive to think it would be that difficult or, or easy to do, I should say, to do that. But um, you think it'd be quite an easy prospect if you were to request from them, can you make me a large print? easy to read copy pdf of this rule book that there is a provision within um copyright law that allows people to make that and i believe that certain companies especially in the uk have a responsibility to provide alternative texts if requested though i'm not sure on that don't quote me on I know, that. at my place of work we always provide a large print physical copy for for different exhibitions and so on so that people come in, we, we make those available. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we we will buy a copy of the text and then convert it for our users. We have to keep the copy of the text on the shelf and no one's allowed to touch it because the, the copy of the text that is being used by our visually impaired users is the text that we've bought, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but it means that they've got access to that and then when that gets returned, we can then use that other, other one again. So. But clearing, having clearer language and easier to understand language is just win-win. Prevents that whole wormhole of rulers intended and rulers written. Yeah. If it's, if it's actually written coherently, rather than you know some waffling speech. Did, in... This is the thing that makes me laugh about the the Dungeons and Dragons scenario: is the same company, Wizards of the Coast, produce Magic: The Gathering. And Magic the Gathering enables to write very, very concise and clear rules on a tiny piece of card with a decent font size. So <laughs> how come the tiny piece of card has the clear rules on and the giant hardback tome has the complex tiny print cards? It, it's a bit nuts. <laughs> but I don't know about your D&D &D games, but our D&D &D 
campaign is always fantastic. You know, somebody will have been using a spell for like three years during a campaign and never actually read like the last five lines of text that suddenly make it vastly inferior or or, or, or vastly better. I've never done with any of my spells, I know that for sure. So question number four, which I think we've sort of talked about this a little bit already. Aside from large print character sheets, is there any other go-tos for a DM to help accessibility at a rock-up and play table? So th- this one is uh, definitely quite difficult to work around. Um, obviously, yes, large large print character sheets, absolutely great because they help a lot of different print impairments, not just visual impairment. Um, I've got a set of... I've got a link, actually, which I will uh, post to the Facebook group for a dyslexic character sheet created by Geek Native, um, which uses uh, colour identifiers to uh, for the, the various different stats and stuff. So you're not reading the text itself, but using colour to identify. Now, obviously, that's not great for everybody, but it's but it is for a specific print impairment or, or various print impairments. Again, the large print, it's great for some people, but other people can't process that in the same way, especially with, with certain certain ways of, of sort of interpreting rules and, and stuff like that. The larger print could get in the way. So the what can you bring to, say, a con for people to sit down and play as much or as little as you can, I suppose? Can you run a module that doesn't necessarily require tracking things like hit points and skills? Mm-hmm. There's a movement at the moment in terms of roleplay, which is the, the concept of the session zero. So the session zero is when everybody sits down and has a talk about the campaign itself. So you talk about what uh, your what the what you as a DM are expecting from the campaign, what the players themselves are expecting from the campaign, uh, what you can even talk about stuff like boundaries, what are you comfortable playing? What themes are you comfortable playing with? What themes are you not comfortable playing with? Is there anything that's just a, a flat no? No, we're not. We can't deal with these issues. I don't want these issues raised at all within the game. Which you know, it's fair enough. Um, and there's there's some talk at the moment about even these these sit down con games having a what for want of a better word, a session zero, but like 10 minutes at the start where you talk to the players about their needs and their wants and what they want from the game and how and what they want, what they expect to get out of the game. And then you can modify what you want from that. Now, obviously, in terms of the style of a character sheet, that's going to be quite hard to do unless you've got a printer sat next to you and you're able to look up a, a, a specific character sheet and print it off. But in terms of expectations... Uh, you can you can modify the content of the module if you're running a module mm-hmm. to then cater for those expectations. So if you've got someone with a hearing impairment, you can uh, ensure that they are sat in the correct position. They can see the DM. They can see their lips. They can see their hand gestures. Um, if you happen to be very cool and know how to do uh, BSL, you could even sign. Uh, I've got another article which I will share, which is about a um, a deaf D and D player who is talking about the benefits of BSL, or well, actually ASL in the article, uh, American Sign Language. 
and how it's a more narrative language than English. And the, the games that are run in American Sign Language are a lot more emotive than the games that are run in English because our language can't deal with certain concepts. Obviously, that's an extreme one. I don't expect every, everyone to be a signer uh, who, who's running a game at, uh, at, say, UK Games Expo. Um, that's just un- unjustifiable. But if you do know how to do that, I, please do. That would be awesome. But to, to go to a, a simpler version of that it is say you have someone with a visual impairment in your game don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to describe the visuals of what's going on it's the audios it's the smells if you've got someone who is hard of hearing talk more about the visuals and what is what they can see because the the order what they can hear is less important to that individual and it's just about catering the experience for the people that you're providing that service for because that I never thought from the, the GM's point of tailoring the description. That's a really good idea. And get get it all sorted. I think the idea of the session zero at a, a con game is invaluable because you're quite often gaming with strangers. I think it's, it's really good. And, and not just for um, accessibility, but just also for, you know, what expectations are. Because as a DM, you're in a very powerful position to... to determine what's going to happen to those player characters in that and there might be some situations that could be you know for certain people who have have certain experiences or situations in their life that um it could be very detrimental to be placed in those situations you know um certain events in their life might it could bring back painful memories or something and they're like you know just to say like i don't want anything involving boats and i don't want to talk about it but just there's a reason for this, and I don't want to go into details. And just just to know that the DM can then go great because I had you starting on a nautical adventure in the first session. I can now, I'll change that to you could be you know crossing the desert on a camel instead, or, or or something, you know, just being aware rather than that person then suddenly being in an awful situation where they're not enjoying the session anymore, um, and letting it just you know not not be a problem, not have to sit there in silence, or or to have to leave without saying why, you know. Just get it out of the way at the beginning. Yeah, and, and especially with some of the themes that certain games deal with, such as I'm thinking stuff like Call of Cthulhu. Now, obviously, the horror theme, people like horror in different ways, and, and it can be quite disturbing for, for some people yeah. to experience this particular form of or genre of horror that they're not expecting. So it's important to talk about that, you know, oh, I'm coming into this game of Alien, uh, okay, I kind of know what's going on because I've seen the Alien films, but this guy hasn't. He has no idea what a xenomorph is or what a facehugger is and stuff. That could be incredibly traumatic if you just start showing them the gory pictures and uh, and stuff. You know, H- just H.R. Geiger art for <laughs> to the uninitiated could could be uh, could be a problem. Definitely so, not. Yeah, basically, there's not anything you could bring to the there are things that you could bring to the table but you can't cater for everybody and you need to have that conversation um with with the person obviously that's not ideal at a sit down table but there are there are there are a few tools out there that that can help with that so question number five when you've got players who have opposing sensory issues, is there a good way to balance them? 
e.g. someone who needs music to focus versus someone who cannot focus without music? I mean, for me, it sounds like there needs to be a conversation at the start about exactly, you know, if, 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 if for one of the party, it's an absolute must, I must have this or I just can't. And the other person is just a preference. Well, then there's probably going to be some wiggle room to make some adjustments um, and sort of find a middle ground, perhaps, that would work for both of them and, and the rest of the party as well. I, I don't have any particularly sensory needs, but I would find loud music in a role-playing game to be very distracting for me. And I wouldn't want to exclude anyone. So I would hope we could find some sort of middle ground that would help you know, everyone to enjoy the session. Because it's a, it's a real, it's a, it's a community game. It's a, it's a group game, isn't it? It's a group dynamic of a for role-playing in particular. If there is someone who needs sound to concentrate, <laughs> someone who needs no sound, if they're friends... Then they're going to want to play together. Yeah, um, very true. I think the approach that I would probably take to that particular situation is to again look at the environment that the game's being held in. Is a sit-down table, like a table with everyone gathered around, the most appropriate way to do that, or do we move it online? Do we use Rule Twenty so that the person who yeah. needs the music can have their music on quietly on their headphones? The person who doesn't need music or silence can have that silence they could wear even noise cancelling headphones and just talk even if they're in the same room if they're say in a computer cluster or something like yeah. that or an internet cafe they can then engage in that game in their comforted environment without having that need needed stress of being in an environment where they don't have their support i think that is a fantastic point and i think maybe shows my ignorance of thinking automatically you playing in person running roll d20 or games like that just makes it much more accessible and the, and, and i've not thought of yeah i mean but, even if you're in a school say you've got a computer cluster in a school you're all sat around with the, the pcs say the pcs are a spade in a circle and you've got a table in the middle everyone's wearing headphones and talking on skype or discord or what have you but they're playing the game in person you could stop people talking over each other, which could help with uh, certain sensory issues. You could stop uh, that people could uh, tailor their environment so that they could have that music or they could have atmospheric stuff going off and around them if they're comfortable with that, or they could turn that off if they don't want to. So yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the barriers in terms of this particular situation is about adapting the environment to suit the the needs of the individuals. Thank you for that. No worries. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Again, eyes opened. So one listener asked uh, the following question. We get a lot of training on how to help our deaf students in the classroom, but it generally feels like things are just bolted on. Has anything ever cropped up during gaming that also points to the way of better methods of teaching? Especially, is there a better way of doing things for everyone, not just extras, that the teacher or LSA can do for deaf students? Are they asking, what have we found helping deaf people play games that could be transferred to the classroom? Yeah. I've got no experience of this one at all. I've got a, I've got a friend who has given me some lovely tips. Thank you, Beth. She has, she um, 
helps run a or is one of the organizers for a a LARP called Kamoa, which is based around pirates and magic and and stuff. Nice. Uh, one of the things that they've integrated into that game uh, is a system of hand signals. Um, so the hand signals are mostly about uh, so it's stuff like um, are you are you okay? Um, so you make the the hand signal for okay uh, within that. That basically means do you consent to have this to not to have that, that sounds like a proposition but no but do you consent to have this engagement with me or, you know it could be a heated discussion or something like that it's it's a way for someone to back out of a situation they're not comfortable with but there's various other hand signals that are used within the within the game and it works quite well i'm terrible at it because i can't see but i'm a very very small minority within the game <laughs> you can't, I can't see what to do and people just bat me around the head and tell me uh, back off um, which is fine because I've, I've got close friends and a hot thick skull also I've got a an article uh, that I think I've talked about before which is about deafness and uh, role playing uh, which talks about the use of uh, British, like, British sign language American sign language in terms of uh, the catering the game yourself or adapting the game yourself to um to those needs obviously the other thing i wanted to mention with this is not tied to deafness but it is tied to uh, visual impairment because obviously that's my specialty uh there is a board game called nyctophobia which was designed by a gentleman i can't remember his name now um but yeah all the players were blindfolds uh, and the board is tactile, and you're running around the woods being chased by a, an axe murderer and have to escape the axe murderer, but you, obviously you can't see what's going on. But that is the reason I bring it up is that it's an example of using accessibility as a means to create game mechanics. Not, not obviously not exploiting accessibility to use game mechanics but you but integrating those accessible accessible ideas into the mechanics of the game to produce a game that is natively accessible the reason that that's for me that that's important is growing up with a visual impairment the only accessible games that i could uh get were stuff like chess and uh scrabble and a fellow which are great, uh, but I'd take the Braille chessboard, I'd grab all the pawns and knights and stuff, and I'd start playing dragons with them because, you know, I'm a, I'm a child with the, with the chessboard. But, and then growing up and becoming a teenager, I'm wanting to get involved with, you know, get into Warhammer, uh, get into um, collectible card games, you know, all, all the, 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 you know, I want to play my Euro farming board game that has won Essen through, you know, the previous year, which I don't have access to because there isn't an accessible version of that. So maybe one of the things that, that could be maybe crowdsourced uh, is a list of accessible games, games where mechanics uh, benefit not benefit but like in terms of winning or losing, but benefit in terms of accessibility. The people with uh, disabilities, mental health uh, issues, mental well-being, uh, that sort of thing. 
thinking uh, there's a game called Mysterium, which is a Ukrainian um, uh, detective game. Yeah. One of the one of the key components of that is one of the characters is mute. So if you have someone with maybe with social anxiety or just with speech issues or just not not non-verbal, then they could potentially take that role and they could engage in for one. I'm trying to think of a way of saying it and uh, to get across my meaning here. So, so yeah. So as a child, I played what I viewed as childish games. You know, chess you learn as a child mm-hmm. and you play it. And I had access to that because it's very popular and it's a childish game. Settlers of Catan, for me, sort of growing up, is a more adult game. It's not a more adult game in any way, shape or form. But but as a child, for me, it was a more adult game. It was a more native, normal game. And being able to find games like that, that do... Yeah, so it's the difference between Monopoly and uh, Twilight Imperium. You know, I enjoy playing Monopoly. I enjoy play, playing Twilight Imperium. I I seek to play Twilight Imperium because it's a very, very nice game, and it's and it dives into that sort of scratches that geeky itch that I have. Mm-hmm. Which Monopoly doesn't do in any way, shape, or form. That's just roll a move and then hand over some cash. And being able to find games with accessible elements that that scratch that geeky itch, but don't that aren't dumbed down is one of the is one of the very frustrating parts sort of growing up with, with the disability from my point of view because i'm a massive nerd that was one of the things that was mostly was most frustrating was the fact that it was like oh yeah we've got you a game for christmas oh yeah what is it it's braille cards lovely i'll play solitaire then shall i with my braille card oh i've moved them um <laughs> Where I don't want to play solitaire. I want to play. I want to play magic. I want to play uh, Pokemon. I want to play Yu-Gi-Oh. You know, but the, the these games don't have accessible elements, so I can't play them. Thank you for feel, that. Feel like this is just me ranting for a few hours. No, it's good. <laughs> I am learning so much from listening to you, Ricky. I'm just sitting here and going, like, you know, I, these are things I hadn't even you know considered. You know, I'm. I'm upset because people aren't painting their models, and you're telling <laughs> a whole story of like you know growing up with no access to even you know to the games themselves, and it's just it's sort of making me aware of stuff that I should be aware of. Thing is, it sounds like it sounds like it's all a sob story and 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 what have you, but it's not. You know, I had a healthy childhood. I managed to get into these things despite you know the barriers and, and accessibility and stuff, and I had a lot of support from my friends and family around me. Uh, to do it what my point really is is that there are people out there that don't have those support networks yeah. that want to engage with our community that might not be able to because those those systems are not in place yeah and well, hopefully because as board gaming seems to be in going through a boon at the moment that accessibility will hopefully become more in the mind or is in the mind I don't know. I, I will say I haven't seen any board games that I've purchased recently don't seem to jump out at me at being more accessible, but then I'm not keyed into looking for accessible versions of them. I don't know if there are more. Is there an accessible version of Twilight Imperium available now? Ricky? I do not believe so. I could be wrong, though. Um, 
I, I don't know what Asmodi are up to, so it could be. I mean, I, I hate games that like, have thousands of tiny chits anyway, and I can look at the chits and see what they say, so I, <laughs> I imagine. I will get you into playing 70s war games at some point, Andy. They're, <laughs> they're 2,000 card chits. Well, we can hire a sports hall to play one. Another question. Are there examples out there of, say, D&D or Warhammer being used to encourage and support language acquisition? Now, I don't know about D&D or, like, Warhammer or, or 40k specifically, but I have used several card games for language acquisition and sort of engaging people where English is a second, third, even fourth language, quite often with a, a storytelling element. Where you, sort of, you draw a card... And it might be an opening sentence or a few lines. And then the player then moves that story on. And then the next person draws a card. And it might be a, a monster. It might be another piece of exposition or story. And you work that. And then you can engage people in sort of speaking English in that regard. And another approach I've taken is having two versions of a game. If I'm working with a group which has got predominantly a common language finding what well, I'll get a Italian version of this game or a Polish version of this game and an English game version of the game. We can play it all at the same time, but we, we, we are playing the same game. We're just playing versions in different languages or even printing out rule books in secondary and tertiary languages for people. And then we'll try and have as much in, of it in English as we can, because I obviously don't speak other languages that I've printed the rule books out for, but having that some common elements which have got people a point of contact in something that they do understand rather than just trying to play everything alien. And I know I, I always try and link that back to the experience of when I try to play German board games when I've printed off an English copy of the rule book, but the version I've got is German and all the tokens are in German and I can't read or speak German despite 30 years of industrial. I, I, I still can't pronounce any of the German tanks, Tom. So my German army, <laughs> I may not be the person to advise on this one. Um, I think the answer is yes. Um, there is a lot of value in, especially role play and, and gaming in, in general for language acquisition. It, because it's an inherently social activity that we do, uh, it means that discussion is a key part of that. And if you are in an environment where a particular language is being used and you've got the basics of that language, then you're going to learn in that. If you, I think the, the key is the engagement side of things. Is, is, is the individual going to be engaged with the content that you're, that you're creating? And will that content then uh, promote language acquisition. I know a few people who have come to the UK and they actively seek out D&D groups or, or roleplay groups because it's a more relaxed environment that they can practice English in in order to increase their fluency in English. I, I believe that there's probably some studies somewhere about it, but I'm not sure where I'd have to look, look up and I can't promise anything. But one of the one of the articles I did manage to drag up from the 
the bowels of the internet uh, was the use of role-playing in terms of language acquisition in the neurodivergent. As again, I'll post the article uh, at some point. It's a, it's a book called Inclusive Spectrums, and there's a chapter in the book uh, called The Power of Play. Uh, it's free to free to view on Word, uh, not WordPress, press books. And that talks about the, the use of Dungeons & Dragons, roleplay and LARP uh, for the neurodivergent in terms of language acquisition. And what it says, essentially, it's not a very long article, but what it does say is that the, the value that, that these games produce is, is derived from the fact that you've got a set of mechanical rules and a set of societal rules that are easy to follow and, and laid out in front of you. And because those are laid out in front of you, because those are easy to follow, which is ties back into what we're talking about, about making your rules easy to understand. Um, but yes, but because they're, they're, they're easy to follow, it means that it becomes a more relaxed uh, scenario, and it means that the language acquisition becomes a more natural process uh, within that. Now, I'm no, no expert on neurodivergence. Uh, I'm just quote, quoting kind of what the book's saying. <laughs> but it, it's some it's some evidence to show you that, that talking... I, I mean, it's fairly simple, isn't it? If friends are sat around a table talking, they're going to learn things. They're going to learn from each other. They're going to learn societal norms. They're going to learn language. The, the, the group vocabulary will be increased because, well, you're adding stuff like the word dragon or, uh, I don't know, Favorite into their vocabulary and and it gives people a an opportunity to sit back and go hang on i don't know what that word means can can you describe that word for me in another way that i might be able to understand and this 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 works for accessibility this works for i mean it's all accessibility someone who doesn't know the same language as a group is is disabled in the in the comprehension side of things you know they don't actually have a disability they just don't know the language, but yeah. Um, yeah. So it's I, I've got another thing on accessibility, not from a disability standpoint, which is quite interesting. Which I'll also post. Um. <laughs> no, that um, I, the role playing and that sort of thing is helped uh, when I was a kid in, in speech therapy. I was encouraged to read out the choose your own adventure books, and that that was part of my speech therapy. Yes. A kid, there would be like several of us round a table reading out a choose your own adventure book, and we would like play it as a group in speech therapy, and that was much easier than a way of talking normally than saying, "Can you please show me the way to the library?" And I want a ham sandwich on the way. I so think it was just well, to engage. My hovercraft is full of eels. <laughs> Nightmare. Um. Big caveat, though, with this discussion is that it's not going to engage everybody. You know, role playing is not something that everyone enjoys, and I think for I know, I know, it's it's a controversial opinion, um, but you know, it's not something everybody enjoys. It's not something people get into, um, and and. You know, don't, don't just go, okay, this this person doesn't speak English. They must now play Dungeons and Dragons. You're now an elf. Here's a staff. Go and fight the Tarmogoyf. Um, it's, again, it's about that session zero and having that discussion with the person. Is this something that you would enjoy playing? However, you can communicate with, with 
with, with the, I assume that you can communicate in some very lucid way uh, if you're inviting them to a Dungeons and Dragons session anyway. Um, yeah, and, and the same goes for tabletop gaming, collectible card games, you know, all, all of it. It's all social, it's all good, it's all talking. Yeah, it's all about that social contract, isn't it? And mm-hmm. just the, the interaction. And I, I'm firmly of the opinion, really, that quite often a lot of the actual game doesn't really matter. It's the, it's, it's the game is a medium that you're just using to spend time and engage with a friend when you're playing. Yeah. With, or, or a like-minded, if it's a, a random person, at least probably a like-minded person because the game that you're playing. I think. Yeah, it's, it's essentially, would you like to, to meet up, hold some shiny rocks for four hours whilst we admire each other's artwork? It's <laughs> yeah, and like if you're playing D- thing as well, you know. <laughs> if, if, if you're playing D&D, it's more than likely, you know, do you want to meet up on a Tuesday evening with a bunch of probably slightly nerdy, geeky people to, you know, have a discussion of who wins in a fight between an elf and a giant yeah. and who's who, got who the shiniest like, pointy stick or, or shall we just vividly hallucinate a story together you know it's it's uh, <laughs> yeah it, it's it's all just an excuse to be next to another primate and uh share, share, brain, primate, <laughs> share primate things <laughs> so our, our final question uh are there any games which are particularly good at integrating children with very pronounced needs but either don't leave them at spectators or lead to other children being frustrated with them, while also still being a game that could appeal to most children. Mm. Now, my experience of this one would be it's a potential minefield because children as a species aren't particularly understanding of each other or patient or under, you know, willing to sort of give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Um, given the the setting that the, the the question seems to be uh portraying that this is this is some form of integrated school yeah uh or or, or club or, or or something like that um and i think that basically it comes down to this session zero thing again it is you need something that's going to engage both I say both sets of children, but it's not. It needs to engage every individual there. Not, not th- these people are uh, able, these people are disabled. It should be, what are your needs? What are your needs? What are your needs? What do you need? What, what do you want from this experience? And then trying to tailor and find an experience that, that can be had with that. Um, <laughs> as as you were talking uh, about that um, just there, Tom, I was thinking about when I was at, at school in PE, uh, they had me doing tennis. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched a blind man play tennis, because um, I certainly haven't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was there. <laughs> There's just balls everywhere. I have no idea what's going on. Um I think that was more a we uh, we we haven't got a teacher to 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 watch him while he does something else. But <laughs> and and luckily I'm quite a jolly sort and do get involved. I, I mean I was just running around mostly. Um, but you know that that's that's an example of a a an activity that was kind of inappropriate for my ability. But obviously I didn't engage with it. You know I I hate tennis. 
you know, <laughs> don't mind watching it, playing it, not not great. Um, you know, so I didn't engage with that that particular activity, that particular game. But when you come into uh, into the class and and say we were in maths and we do some sort of maths puzzle, um, I'm quite good at maths, so I, I was able to engage fully with that because assuming there was no visual element, I was usually all right, or if it could be explained, that was fine. Um, so yeah, I think if it's in a school which is integrated, you'll hopefully have people who know the individuals there and can tailor the experience for those individuals. So there's not much I can, you know, there's no brilliant game. I can't just say, well, this one, uh, you know, is is the most, you know, it's the greatest sort of American board game you've ever seen. It's got lots of bright shiny bits, and it's going to be great for everybody because that's that's not how it works. Unfortunately, it's a case of what are what do we want to get out of this experience, and how do we create a mechanic or find a mechanic that allows us to produce that. Um, that re not resource, but that that emotion or, or or what have you allows us to explore this concept. Yeah, I, I think if you'll, it, it might well be also possibly something that it, it would be different. I don't think I I don't think anything exists in the world where if you've got twenty kids, you can use it, and that one game is going to engage all twenty kids across a whole range of different spectrums and all sorts of things. But I think you could well have maybe. Oh, we've got these five kids all really like Doctor Who. We're going to engage them in some sort of Doctor Who game that they can all take part in and they will all engage around Doctor Who. These five really like Simpsons. So we're going to do some sort of Simpsons thing. These three are really into Sesame Street. We'll do some Sesame Street thing. And it, it might well be you come up with, or you find a game which you can adapt to those different fandoms that the children can then engage with in what they they can put their knowledge into the game, into their characters and that sort of thing, rather than this is a board game we're going to play, or we're going to play this D&D module that everyone's going to like. You know, we're going to play very basic D&D rules, but we're going to strip most of it out and set it in Doctor Who, last week's Doctor Who episode. Yeah. That sort of thing, I think, yeah. is probably a, a much better way and a possible way. Of, oh, we're going to do a Simpsons episode, that sort of thing, which which everyone can, I think, you would have that starting point for people who like Simpsons, right, people like Simpsons, will now use that as our jumping-off point. Yeah, and the, there's plenty of games out there that do um, cater for... Um stuff like uh different levels of cogni- cognition uh things like that there's a game no thank you evil which is designed i've got got it on the shelf behind me which is designed uh for different uh age groups to be able to role play together um so you've got your very you i'd say your very your very young character who has one set of stats and then you've got your older character and it becomes more complex and then you've got your oldest character where they're basically playing the numera rule set um because it's based off that uh is it mobius i think it's mobius or something 
no, it's not. Um, <laughs> but the 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 three the three levels of 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 cognition for those three age groups are mechanically uh, intertwined, so that the three age groups can potentially um, engage in the in the material from a, a, a perspective where they they'd be comfortable. Now, I'm not saying that you know role-play games for five-year-olds are the best way to deal with you know uh the, the current situation that's not the case in any way shape or form but it shows that there is there are mechanics out there that do try and cater for some aspects of this but they're still going to need to be tailored to those individuals yeah i'd just like to quickly add a small caveat to that that is if people are playing with a group of neurodivergent adults don't use resources designed for children just don't um that's there's no way around it people with different levels of cognition don't need to be infantized with the resources and the things that they're given Thanks. So I was trying to work out how to say that. <laughs> I was like, I've chosen a bad example, but yes. no. But I think in this regard, because we're talking about children, yeah, like we're, we're talking about if we're talking about a bunch of seven-year-olds, then that might be is, is slightly different. But yeah. I think you know, if we were talking about thirteen-year-olds, you wouldn't want to be giving them. Yeah. Well, it's probably. I think meant for five-year-old Monopoly. I want to play Catan. You know. Yeah. You know, play a game that's sold in a game shop, not that's sold in Smiths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and just because I'm blind, why? Like, you know. <laughs> so I think that that is the the end of our questions and our our brief chat today, Ricky. So, do you have anything that you you think we you haven't said? Um, have we anything, Ricky? Are there any glaring holes that we haven't covered? Anything you you died to let know? There probably is, but I I, uh, I can't see them uh, <laughs> right now. Um, phrasing, yeah. As as I say, I've got a, a number of resources which I'm happy to share with the the community as well. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that you guys would be happy if I asked people to to obviously share their resources and experiences as well, because um, obviously we can create a create a discussion uh, and genuinely try and find not necessarily answers, but definitely uh, help with a lot of these issues um i'm not going to put on a sort of bbc content warning with a phone number where you can get help because i don't have any numbers um but yes uh yeah i would, I would say if there are issues that you're having in terms of accessibility or disability in general there are charities out there that can help uh maybe not from the gaming side of things because it's quite a a niche market that we're in here um but i'm sure that we could we could definitely put up some resources around that as well if need be nice i will include the links that ricky's mentioned throughout today in the show notes and we'll also put them in the uh facebook group discussion chat for this episode as well so if in the future people find this episode and want to look up those resources they should still be around just search for the Official discussion thread, episode 13 on the Hobby Support Group Facebook page. You should find all the links from today. Thank you very much, Ricky, for joining us. Thanks, Ricky. It's been a pleasure.
goodbye listeners and we'll see you in a fortnight see you soon take care everyone <laughs>